Hello everybody, welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here and I'm joined by Don as usual. Today we wanted to talk about the variety of human lifestyles and stuff that have appeared over history. Uh, I wanted to use step peoples and their culture as a jumping off point because I'm just personally very fascinated with that kind of culture and, and that lifestyle and the history of those people. And it's just so different from our kind of like modern life today. And uh, I, I don't know, I think there's a lot to be learned from just how how strange it is that how uh, other people have lived and, and that they've like that was normal to them and how weird we would be to in their eyes, you know, so um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. Sure. So number one, like, what do you mean by step peoples in general? Like what, like, are you talking about a certain region, you know, in, in like say Central Asia or something like that? Or uh, what, like, what's the basic definition kind of thing here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess different people will define this differently depending on what they're talking about. But what, when I say that, I, yeah, I mean, Central Asians, um, the peoples that I know the most about would be like the Mongolians, like the Mongol Empire, that sort of thing. I know a little bit about various, uh, you know, the major kind of like Turkic tribes and stuff that have come and gone. So like the the people that eventually became the the Turks, right? Like in in Anatolia, the the Seljuks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Gok Turks, the uh, Ghaznavids, all these various clans and dynasties that have uh, come and gone. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between them, to be honest. Uh, but there, there's, they're also like, you, you don't want to just necessarily lump them all together. They are like distinct. They have their own sort of thing going on. Especially the Mongols, they sort of stand out. But yeah, like, you know, um, pastoral people in Central Asia and uh, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, were they like there was there were used to be like big cities out there, right? Or like some sort of cities, like in Central Asia. Like uh, yes, yeah. okay. So that's that's yeah. something that is confusing to me in some ways because I don't really know, like anything that has to do with like the movement of peoples throughout Europe and stuff like that in, in Asia, like where there was like you know big invasions and all that kind of stuff, and you know the Franks and all that Visigoths and all that kind of stuff. I know almost nothing about. Like I know the words maybe, but like that's about it kind of thing. So um, I know a little bit about like say Mongol invasions and stuff, mm -hmm. but. So what kind of time period are you talking about too that you're interested in? Like, is that, um, um well, it, it varies like the, you know, the, these different, uh, the, these different groups of people were around in different times. So I, I know a little bit about different time periods, I guess. Sure. The, uh, the Mongols were like the 1200s were really when they were kicking off and, and, you know, doing their thing that they're famous for. Um, and that was the period of time when that, part of the world like the you know the the stands of today right like mm -hmm. Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan that kind of part of the world had some of the largest cities in the world it wasn't desertified the way that we you know we think of it today that we know it today mm -hmm. uh, as far as we can tell right like we don't obviously have like images and photographs and stuff but we have descriptions of people and uh, describing it and they really emphasize how green and lush it is and how everything grows there you can grow whatever you want and it's just everywhere um so and the the size of the cities are massive i, I was doing a little bit of research a while ago uh 
just kind of for funsies. And I discovered this book that was talking about this and it's incredible. The, so there was very few uh, numbers of cities that were larger than, they had a population larger than like 1 million. Uh, Europe had none of them. The largest city in Europe at the time was Kiev, nothing in central or Western Europe. And that was uh, just under half a million people. Mm -hmm. And uh, you look at Central Asia, Merv, uh, Balkh, there's others. I'm just kind of blanking off the top of my head. But there was, I would say, like five to ten, probably less than ten, that were over a million. And uh, a handful of those were two million. So Mm -hmm. the, the two that I mentioned were clearly over two million. And then if you go to China, uh, there's actually significant numbers of, of uh, like mega cities there that were over a million, probably 10 dozen, something, 10 or a dozen, something like that. Sure. Uh, so th- just that uh, alone, I think, reframes things, you know, because we, we sort of just being from the West and having the sort of standard idea of history where you know it's it's changed a lot it's not as bad as like say 50 years ago or something but we still sort of have this idea of like ancient greece then rome and then the dark ages and then uh you know and medieval europe and stuff and then uh renaissance and blah 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 that that whole kind of thing and even though we've tried to like correct it and we sort of understand that this is a problematic narrative and you know it, it sort of emphasizes Europe unduly and it ignores like other places in the world um, I, I don't think we really actually understand how much like how skewed that really is when you consider like just something as simple as like well where where are the greatest numbers of people what are the dense urban centers in the world mm-hmm. uh, like Central Asia I think most people just don't know anything about it. Like they just kind of know it has like a ukibuki stand, sort of a name, and that's about it. Like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what my dad calls it. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that's fairly, you know, that's kind of uh, fairly common to think of it that way. And that that was really like a a, a central like cultural center, an economic center for the world. The Silk Road, you know, passed through there, mm-hmm. um, and so these cities, these are part, this is really part of like Persian culture more than steppe culture. These weren't like nomadic cities. They weren't part of that kind of deal. But they're right on that borderland, right? So when the Mongols come in, they are some of the first cities that encounter them when they're on the war path. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they get hurt the worst. Some of those cities, uh, the, the, what people wrote about them was that they were completely destroyed and everyone in them was killed. So mm-hmm. if you imagine one of the largest cities in the world is just destroyed completely. It, you know, that's, it's like nuking New York city or LA or something. It's like that significant. It's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. So, and also just uh, like, what, what's sort of the closest you've been to this region too? Like, I mean, I guess you lived in India for a while, but like, where did you ever go up North or anything like that? Or, or, just the yeah the the closest would have been india and the the northmost part of india that i went to was like north of delhi in the foothills of the himalayas we did like a school trip and uh did like a kind of like a camp out sort of a thing there for a week Mm -hmm. that's interesting so i haven't actually been to central asia I, i lived in turkey too so if you there's some sure like connections there i suppose yeah 
Yeah, that's cool. Um, so what were you, like, what was the idea here for Step Peoples um, as, like, uh, you know, you were talking about, like, diversity of ways of living kind of thing, so. Yeah, the thing, that, so the thing that I find really interesting to think about when I read about these people or, or just, you know, think about it or whatever, it, it's just so different the way that they lived and uh i think a big part of that is just sedentary versus nomadic or pastoral or semi-nomadic people that's just a pretty fundamental difference and i think we you know you read about that and you kind of just like okay some people ate this they stayed and farmed other people ate this because they moved around but i think that there's there's a much like more it's a drastic change in perspective and lifestyle and to me it's just amazing to think about how different human beings can be like if you think about other species you know different kinds of like horses or birds or something like that Mm -hmm. there's differences right and um you know like like birds for example we're talking about actually different species but within human beings we're all the same species and yet we can live so differently uh, just based on circumstances, I think that's really astounding. Like, I, I really like. Not only are human beings just bizarre when you compare them to the rest of the animal kingdom, but just the the variety and the yeah, yeah, it's just amazing to think about. So, like, w- one thing that kind of stood out to me, I was listening to a podcast recently that the Ottoman History Podcast put out about the Mongols. Um, they've been doing a really good series lately, actually. So anyone who's interested in some, like a good survey of Islamic history, like broadly, I would recommend checking out the recent series. I think it's called Making of the Modern, Making of the Muslim World, something like that. Uh, really fantastic stuff. But so they did an episode about the Mongols. And one of the things that they mentioned was the way that the steppe, like uh, horse riders would, would, uh, eat like if they didn't have access to like readily to food they would cut the the neck of their horses and so i guess i should step back a little bit so these guys it wouldn't be just one horse that they would take with them they would often take at least at least a second one but oftentimes like three four five even six horses with them and and their families as well and so if they were going long distances and we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of miles these these guys could go over like a thousand miles easily within the course of like a year or something like that mm-hmm. uh if they got hungry there wasn't food around to eat they would like slit the throat of their horse not to kill them but just to kind of like draw blood mm-hmm. and drink the blood of the horse until they were you know sated to some extent and uh, you know they didn't want to kill the horse they just were looking for a snack and so then they would swap horses and go over and ride the other one and Mm -hmm. uh i mean that's just (laughs) i don't know that's different (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, yeah i remember uh che guevara said that they had to do that when they were in the sierra madres in uh cuba oh yeah they had to yeah they were they were drinking horse blood and things like that because they ran out of food and uh yeah that's pretty i don't know Pretty extreme. I guess, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. If you got to survive, I guess, yeah, you got to. Yeah, I mean, this is like a, a soldier's thing, right? Sure. Like, so yeah. it's, that's that wouldn't be like a, a standard, like, yeah. everyday kind of sure. meal or something. That's just something you would do out of 
necessity or whatever. But yeah. I, I think they also took pride in that kind of thing. So like a big part of their diet was milk from the various animals that they were herding around and things. And so uh, milk, meat, and blood is <laughs> a big part of their <laughs> diet because they just there wasn't a lot that was growing up there necessarily. There's a little bit of like a revision that's going on with the history around that where people are sort of seeing that it's not the case that people were like strictly like within these categories that we have of like okay so if you're if you're not agricultural that means you'd never grow anything well that's that's not really the case in fact they were growing uh, a lot of things but they were moving around right so it it was just a different engagement with that kind of like agricultural production you, sure. you would have some people that would grow stuff um and it would it would be less about like harvesting and, and storing things for long term it would be more like I guess a lot of times you would just raid those people and take that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I I guess another thing that I find really interesting is sort of like the basic skill sets that these types of people would have. So one of the reasons that the Mongol Empire was able to amass this massive army very quickly uh, and have them be like really excellent soldiers, like very well trained, is just that the basic skill set that every man would have would be very well suited for combat in the, in the particular kind of combat that they would engage in. So horseback riding, basically everybody could ride a horse. If you look at a place like, like Europe or the Middle East or whatever, that wasn't the case, you know, to, to ride a horse was sort of a more specialized kind of a thing. Less so, I guess in the Middle East, there was a little bit more of that, but like you would have to be a knight or a nobleman or something. You wouldn't own a horse. Like 90% of people just wouldn't have access to that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but in in the steppe, like that was just a basic part of life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only that, but like archery was something that you would know how to do just kind of automatically. And I think the the standards of excellence was much higher for archery. So and, and also like the technology, the the sort of like uh, creativity involved in their their designs was uh, just at a different level. They did this thing where it was sort of like the reverse of the. So, you know, your standard kind of idea of like a bow would be like it's curved away from you, right? Like you, if you're holding it out with your, say, your left hand, the bow would curve towards you, both above and below your hand. They had bows that would curve the other way and that like increased the tension on the string. And so they could actually shoot very quickly. Like, I hmm. think I, I'm... I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but I think that some people would say that they could shoot two arrows in a second. Wow. And so they would have, like, multiple arrows in their hand, and they would, like, put them in there and then, like, just shoot them, like, almost like a machine gun. Just boop, 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 boop. Really crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Th- th- this kind of stuff is just really fascinating to me that they... The, these people had like full real lives they're not just like these cartoon kind of like weird things that like kind of popped up and you know we think of like these hordes of mongols like storming in and and as if yeah. they're not really like uh like real humans but like they were you know it wasn't just like orcs from lord of the rings like these were sure. like people you know what i mean and that's i don't know it just blows my mind um what kind of like uh ideology that did they have did they have like uh like were they muslim in as early as like the 1200s and stuff or is it like was that earlier or much later 
Like, was it, you know? Um, yeah, that came later. Okay. Um, so their relation to religion was much more casual at that point. Like, if we're talking about 1200s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had, like, the whole Tengrist kind of thing. So they did have, like, their own mythologies and beliefs. But it was much less, uh, like, structured and kind of... Uh, it 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 didn't uh, look the same way as like an Abrahamic religion or like Buddhism or something like that. It uh, it was it was much more like kind of clannish, you know, tribal sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So it was like a history of of their their tribe, I guess, like or of their people, and uh, kind of like this mythology about it. And they, they you know they had a an idea of a like a sky god and and what you should do to worship that god and stuff like that but it it wasn't uh, it, they seem kind of free to um to move from one belief system to the other and mix and match and kind of incorporate things differently but the other thing is this is this tends to be true with conquering folk wherever you go like uh they kind of have other things i think other priorities that they're usually you know that's not always the case but uh, often enough people who are like marauding across the land are are not so concerned with what the gods think, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And then what was the sort of the process for that? Was that like they adopted it as like a court religion or was it like, what, how, what was the conversion process there? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, it really varies with, uh, from like ruler to ruler. So generally speaking, it seems to have occurred like second generation. So with, with the Mongols, they would, conquer an area generally they would kind of set an example of a certain place so they would like say like we're coming you know we're in charge now or we're going to burn you to the ground the first people that received these messages were like uh no you're not going to do that and they got burned to the ground and then the you know news would get around and then a lot of cities would just surrender immediately uh, um although not uh, not always you know it was maybe like 50 50 that that would happen and so eventually they kind of made their way across and were able to take over everything. And uh, they would, after uh, Genghis Khan died, it was split up between his four sons. And uh, the it essentially, there, there was like a process of fragmentation that started to occur. So by that point, like the people after that generation, that's when you start to see people converting to Islam in the, like in the Muslim areas. Uh, with China, it actually the the kind of like uh, conversion to Chinese culture or assimilation into Chinese culture was almost Im- like an immediate process. It was almost part of the conquering process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was very practical, generally speaking. Um, although it, it's not like they were just cynically sort of doing this out of you know just like calculating what is most useful to me. You, you do see examples of people who like at a young age, the kind of age that we typically today would see people looking around for like religious conversion and, you know, early twenties, that's the, that's kind of like the typical age you see that happening. Mm -hmm. That's when you see a lot of these leaders doing that. And oftentimes they would kind of explore different things. Um, There's one guy who I'm, I don't remember his name now, but he was born with the kind of like Tengrist Mongol beliefs, the traditional beliefs of the Mongols and uh, was ruling over a Muslim area. He, um, I think it was a Sunni Muslim area, uh, and he became interested in, in uh, Islam, 
uh, I think he also was interested in some other things, maybe Zoroastrianism, perhaps. Anyway, he, he kind of like flirted around with different things, and he went from like Sunni to Shia to, to back to uh, Dengrist beliefs, actually, and then I think eventually concluded as, as a uh, Sunni Muslim, and I think he died fairly early, so and who knows, he may have, like, had he lived longer, maybe would have tried all kinds of different religions who knows but i i think especially the the move back to the mongol beliefs is interesting there because there's no political advantage to be gained from doing that mm-hmm. you know he he's ruling over muslims his bureaucracy is is muslim um or at least it's like predominantly muslim it's like a you know it's the, it's the standard makeup of like a muslim polity so there would be christians and and jews and whatnot but you know the the mongol beliefs have no there's no reason to adopt that so like it's just interesting to me to see like it, it seems sincere you know his exploration of that stuff so yeah like you, you, that's basically when you you start to see that and i i think that there was a lot of um there's like syncretic sort of things going on so the the those cultures those step cultures placed a lot more emphasis on very like Klingon style values, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Courage in war, and um, it, it, they would often write about like things that we read today, and they just seem horrible, like brutal. It, it just seems like insane the the amount of violence that they would inflict on people. But these were written about with a kind of like glorifying these things, mm-hmm. and to a much l- larger extent than we see in like other medieval texts. You know, I think that's pretty typical when you look at like pre modern stuff. You, you see a lot of stuff that was happening, and you're like, wow, this is insane that they're actually glorifying this stuff. Mm-hmm. But with these folks, it's just a, on a different level, and I think they kind of bring that into the religions that they adopt. So like the Ghaznavids in particular kind of seem that way to me. They were the people that. They were kind of kicked out of Persia, um, led by a, a slave soldier who had kind of like risen up through the ranks uh, and become just an, an important military commander and uh, very loyal to his like mentors and his superiors. Um, they fell on the outs with the the uh, the dynasties that were in control in that area so they found their way through afghanistan modern day afghanistan into india and just went on a rampage you know when uh, when like right-wing indian nationalists and stuff today kind of cry about you know muslim invasions and stuff mm-hmm. if they're talking about these people they uh, you know fair enough <laughs> <laughs> there were there were thousands of temples and stuff that were destroyed and it was all kind of done for this like martial glory you know there wasn't yeah. a real practical reason to do that i mean i I suppose that you're weakening these uh people that you want to control or or or, uh, rule over but you know it's just crazy i I think there was another sort of aspect to it where it was just like the glory of it that was uh part of their culture Mm Hmm. so yeah was was there other things that you wanted to say about like a sort of like diversity idea like this this uh like different ways of living kind of thing um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, th- th- this is just like that. Just reading about this stuff really makes me wonder about this kind of thing. It kind of makes me think about like how much of my personality is determined by my cultural circumstances and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. what if I had been born 
in in one of these cultures in that time period like what would i've been like you know yeah um how would i see the world how would these people see me and and vice versa Mm -hmm. it's just it's just weird like to think about like if you came across someone like this today it would be like coming across like a star trek alien or something you know yeah Um, i don't know if you've ever seen like uh the the attire that uh, women would wear from in the like the Mongol cultures, but it's it's very elaborate and very different from what <laughs> what we're used to. I mean, they had this headgear that it looked like a wedding cake kind of a thing on top. Oh, really? Like it was it was basically like a the whole height of their body essentially on top of their head, like in this incredibly elaborate sort of getup. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I don't know, just comparing something like that where it's like clearly there's a lot of craftsmanship there there's a lot of like there's like this ornate kind of detail and and it's just very impressive you know comparing that with some of the lack of concern about things that we would take for granted as like being a mark of like high civilization of of like a powerful ruling kind of culture whatever they would just like in, in their home territories like their traditional kind of like grounds in modern day Mongolia uh, they maintained that as a capital uh, as the empire expanded and they would bring back all kinds of loot from all the places that they were uh, sacking you know so mm-hmm. uh, and, and not only loot and, and, and things like that but also people like they would kind of collect bureaucrats and scientists and you know thinkers and all this kind of stuff and just bring them back to the capital as like a tribute and you'd think like, okay, well, they're doing all of this. They're probably, you know, building some kind of ornate palace, like some beautiful place that the the Khan can live and have this like courtly kind of culture that looks something like Persia or, or like, uh, you know, like medieval Europe or something like that or China. Nope. Just, it's still a camp and all that loot that they bring back just gets piled up in a big pile. There's just a huge mountain of goblets and pots and coins and is like there's no the relation that they have to this stuff is only as i conquered this and this is just a mark of that there's no other sense of like building that into something else mm-hmm. um they they let the like all the people that they brought back they let them just do whatever they wanted they just like to have them around and just to kind of be like yeah, I I conquered you and now, you know, you serve me. I don't know what you do. I don't understand what you're saying, but you're, you know, do your thing. Uh it, yeah. it's it's I don't know. I it, it's very weird, you know, and uh it's just so different. I you got to respect it on some level, but it's also kind of horrific the extent like the, just the the violence of it all is is just kind of horrific, but uh I don't know. It's just something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's funny because I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't know to what extent other places are like that too. I mean, that's that's kind of like an interesting thing because it's like, okay, we're going to invade all these places and uh, it has a very ambiguous relationship with like this idea of like development, I guess. But like, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that people have to respect a lot or at least like understand in uh, different cultures. Like this has become kind of a big deal to some extent with like indigenous cultures in Latin America as well, I guess. And, and, uh, North America, like this idea that like, you don't necessarily have to have the same plan involved kind of thing of like, Oh, I'm going to maximize technology use, maximize, 
uh, right. um, you know, maximize all the different, uh, have the same model. And that's also become a big controversy within sort of like the question of like sovereignty and uh, in Canada, where, you know, there's like a lot of push for uh, Indigenous self-government and things like that. But uh, it's hard to know what that would actually mean kind of thing. Um, and it's funny because right. it, people do somehow sometimes like invoke sort of like racist ideas uh, that seem almost like based on Mongols or something like that. Like they seem based on like other things of like uh, this idea that like you can't, uh, you can't have institutions that aren't basically the same ones that we have everywhere. Um, uh, and then, yeah. Yeah. One, one thing that I think really uh, makes that very clear is just like the, the idea of like owning yeah. land and the way that we kind of treat land ownership uh, th- that would, you know, for someone who is semi nomadic and is primarily concerned with land as a means of providing grass for thousands of animals, like you got to imagine they got six horses, which are just like your mode of transportation. Then you have hundreds or maybe thousands of animals that you would take with you to feed people. And you would need, like, if your diet is primarily meat or in milk, that's all coming from those animals and you're keeping that for months. You know, you have a month's supply of meat in the form of the actual animal that you're just taking around. So when they got to certain places that didn't have a lot of grass, that was worthless to them. Didn't matter if it was like a major port city, was like one of the shining stars of like maritime commerce or something. And if there wasn't enough grass, they didn't care. So this is what happened in Syria. They came down to Syria. There was a little bit of grass, but not enough. So they, they just left and they went, um, continued into Europe. Oh, that, yeah, that's pretty wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's. Uh, um, did they destroy a lot of the places in Syria too, or was that like? Did they sort of get away with it? I mean, compared to other people, yeah. But I think uh, by Mon- Mongol standards, I think they sort of were relatively light touch there. I mean, obviously they they did Baghdad pretty well. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is like even the sack of Baghdad. If you were not in Baghdad, it didn't necessarily affect your life. Yeah. Maybe at all, you know? So we kind of think of this as like this huge, momentous, like world historical event. But if you were in the next town over and you were just kind of, you know, you, you didn't have some kind of connection to the city, like you weren't like a, a big merchant or something like that that did a lot of trade there and it didn't affect you, then it didn't affect you. Who cares? Like, okay, well... That was crazy, but I guess they're gone now, so mm-hmm. that's it. And they, and they really didn't like change the governance, like the a lot of times like the just the overall political situation was not radically different. It was just like, okay, the people that were in charge are now not not really in charge because they're paying tribute to the Mongols, but even that it, I don't know, didn't change all that much. It's kind of wild. Yeah. I guess there is something about like retroactively imposing our views of nations or something like that on the, that period where, uh, you know, yeah. it's stuff like, uh, you know, in Western Europe at the time, there might've been very little idea of what your allegiance was to some greater thing or something like that. It might just be, you know, you might, there's not like, uh, you might just be some peasant just randomly farming or something. You might not care about the higher culture that much. So, yeah. You might not even know who the king or the rule, like you might have no sense of like the real political circumstances. You might know your local tax collector, you know, your, 
local priest or something like that might have more effect on you so you're paying attention to that kind of thing but in terms of like the the high level politics that today we focus on that a lot yeah. right like biden and putin and all this kind of stuff like that's that really draws a lot of our attention but when it comes to like local government that's more of a niche kind of a concern you know mm-hmm. um i think it was kind of flipped sure back then yeah yeah i don't know i kind of find that interesting that uh i, I don't know if even know if that's healthy it just it's just it, it's amazing to me always how much of our lives is determined by the, the big institutions now um and yeah uh, you know how quickly things can change you know whole countries can have like just coups and just uh, or something like that and then flip you know completely from different social systems even so um yeah i don't know i find that interesting though about this uh this kind of step stuff i, I don't know th- this is kind of maybe a niche question for me but um i don't know the relationship between like eastern europe and uh, step peoples and stuff like were people like in Ukraine and stuff like pushed into those territories or something like that over time or like uh, like what are the relationships between sort of like the Western European people and the step peoples like or like Eastern and Central like were they pushed further west by this whole thing and then that's all that's all I know about that basically like I like I always think of the step too I always think of like wouldn't wouldn't Ukraine be considered a step or something like that I don't know like is that um yeah the, the i know more about like pre-mongol history in that part of the world than i actually do about the mongol period so i'm sure there was a lot of movement of people because of this because that's what you see everywhere else mm-hmm. they went i just don't know the details sure. of that but i know like like going back to kiev um the reason that became such a big city when it was and it, it was always like a large city uh until very recently, to be honest, it was like one of the major cities in that part of the world uh, was because of the river, the Volga mm-hmm. River. And so that the place where it's located is really kind of strategically very interesting and kind of like uh, it's sort of a, I guess Ukraine kind of means borderland, right? Well, there's forests on the left of it, or there were, I don't know if that's still very forested today, but it was, that was a different kind of a, way of living and then on the right you have that step kind of mm-hmm. area and uh, the people to the right of that to the the east of it were they would kind of uh, push into that area and then the people on the on the western side of the river they were kind of uh, they were able to hold their own like they were kind of like fierce in defending that area so much more so than you see in a lot of other areas and i'm not sure exactly why that is maybe they just got lucky maybe it was more easily defended or something but um they were able to kind of like hold their own there and i think there was a little bit of maybe cultural influence or kind of like hybrid sort of situation going on there where they uh you know and eventually you have the uh, like the the Rus tribe coming down, like so the people that would eventually kind of form Russia centuries later, um, they would come down the river, and uh, so there was just like a clash of these different people, right? Like you had like Viking sort of a situation with those Rus tribes, and then you had uh, I forget what they were called, but like the the native Ukrainians, so to speak, and then the the folks to the to the east of that the think that was 
I don't want to get the name wrong, but anyway, you can think of them as like Turkic sort of like nomadic mm-hmm. peoples. And uh, they were all kind of fighting over that um, for various reasons. I think they had different reasons for it. The, the Rus were interested in it because to control that river was very lucrative. Like they, that was a whole like trade system. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the people that were just living there, that was just where they lived. They came up from the south, like from more like the Balkan, kind of like Romanian kind of uh, territory. And then the, the people uh, to the east, were, they just wanted more land. Like they, they, those, that, that, that kind of like step nomadic culture, for them it's all about controlling a huge swaths of land. And it's, uh, it, it's just so different from like a more sedentary people. Uh, even, even these kind of like raiding, like the, the Rus kind of like proto-Viking type peoples, they didn't care about... Um, about controlling large amounts of land for them it was more like creating like a strong um, and secure trading network uh, and then for the sedentary people they just wanted to have like a somewhat self-sufficient kind of ecosystem that they could kind of you know like have their own little economy and thing mm-hmm. going on and uh, the step people just needed more land for their animals <laughs> and it, it was uh, just useful for them to they were able to, to, to beat everybody else. You know, they, they were kind of like bullies that would just go around and like knock heads. And then it's like, okay, well now all this land that no one is using for anything, well, it's a lot of grass for us. So that's, that's what we want. Yeah. It's funny how a lot of these sort of accidents pile up into things that we consider like fixed, fixed parts of a culture or something like that too. And, uh, and uh, I don't know. I find that interesting. I, uh, I, I do want to learn more about that kind of general region. The only, like, my only experience with it, I guess, is uh, I've never been to Europe or anything like that, but uh, I did do that one week in Xinjiang, whatever, and um, uh, that was kind of interesting. I don't know, like, uh, where, it, uh, you know, it did feel like certain parts where you went out into the countryside or something, um, you know, they had, like, different Silk Road, road tour kind of stuff, um, and... Mm-hmm. I bet that's really yeah, interesting. I mean, I didn't know almost anything about it at the time, really. I had only read like a few books about it before I went, and it was just by a fluke kind of thing that I got to go. So, yeah, there was a lot of like uh, sort of like cartoony sort of stuff or, you know, like just different tour guide kind of things, not like uh, not like deep history or anything like that. But it was still... Oh, kind yeah. of like caricature yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, because a lot of the things I went to were... Like my tour guide was uh, Han Chinese and stuff, so I think I got like a certain aspect of it kind of thing. But um, it was interesting though. Uh, the the thing, the impressions I always got the most, like uh, where, uh, like where I felt like the most, uh, you know, impactful was when we were on the bus just driving through, like desert area or something like that. You know, like, um, and you uh, you saw people just you know, very, very cheap kind of concrete buildings and stuff, um, uh, just dotting the landscape kind of thing. And a very, you know, it, it was interesting because a lot of people just, uh, say, sleeping on the top of a concrete building during the day or something, like that kind of thing, like just very, uh, mm-hmm. um, very different than even other places that I knew in China or something because it felt like, it it really did feel like a frontier or something like that, like a very like 
both something that was being developed and also just like a, you know, like you would see uh, the yurts up on the, the mountainside and stuff from, uh, sure. I think a lot of them were, I was told that they were uh, Kazakh, a lot of them. Um, and, okay. uh, you know, and that was an interesting thing, but, uh, you know, and you'd see like all the different goats everywhere on the mountains and stuff. And, um, yeah, Sounds it was nice. very, it was beautiful and, uh, um, it was interesting, but you know, you only get, I'm only there for a week and you only get kind of a snapshot of that. And, uh, it's kind of a strange thing. I went to a mosque there in, uh, like to the area and uh, I thought it was like an ancient mosque or something like that, but apparently it was built for a mall. Um, it was like a, <laughs> it, it, I read it online that like later that like it was, it was like the minaret was built as kind of like almost a novelty, you know, tourist thing almost. And mm-hmm. uh, they had right near there they had uh, someone had a camel for like pictures. And, uh, I don't know. It was just very strange. Like, uh, um, yeah. Uh, when I woke up, uh, one day after I, like the first day I got there after I woke up, um, I went outside and, uh, there was a donkey out front just, uh, shipping like, a like, a like a pack mule kind of thing, I guess, whatever. Like, uh, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, that, I don't know that it was interesting cause, uh, it really did feel like central Asia or something, you know, like having the, you know, the smell of, uh, um, barbecue, horse, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> barbecue, uh, barbecue yeah. stuff everywhere. And, and sure. yeah, I don't know. It was cool, but yeah, I don't know. So it did make me interested in that kind of stuff. And, uh, I feel like, uh, it's, it's become, it's almost sad that it's like over politicized right now kind of thing with everything. Um, I mean, it's yeah. not, I'm not like not even making like a judgment either way. It's just, I'm just saying that like, it's, uh, because that's the kind of region that I would love to go travel again eventually. And, um, yeah. And, uh, I was told that now basically if I went there now, my kind of travel would have been impossible kind of thing. So, um, and, uh, sure. um, I don't know. I, th- I think that traveling to some of these places that we talked about would be a lot of fun for me. So, yeah. I would love to be able to visit Afghanistan, but obviously that's not a great idea. But like, I guess in like the sixties and seventies, that was a hot spot for like hippies. Sure. And so this was prior to it becoming or like just prior or just as it, the wars were kind of going, you know, sure. kicking off. And, uh, it, it's just a, a beautiful country. Like the, the mountains, like people talk about the blue mountains of Afghanistan and stuff like that. And, you see pictures of it and they, that that's the word for it. They're blue mountains, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know that, that just seems like a very cool place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a couple of things that came to mind when you were talking about like that Uyghur area. Um, the first is that, uh, Islam as it spread in the early days made it as far as, as China. Right. Yeah. So it, it got to China by like the eight hundreds and, uh, you know, you're talking about the mosques that were, built there and stuff uh it's really interesting to see like actually old mosques that were built like in that period or or you know afterwards too but they look like you know like the pagoda like the very typical like chinese or eastern style like roofs and and 
you know, you'd think it would be like a Buddhist temple or a Taoist temple or something like that, but they're mosques. And uh, I know that's that's very interesting to me that there wasn't this idea. Like from a very early stage, Chinese Muslims were they were Chinese. Like they weren't just like adopting like an Arab or Persian or whatever sort of a culture. They were, you know, they they kept to their culture in a sense and in a lot of these different ways. And um, I read a very interesting book that looked at uh, translations from Persian into, uh, I, I don't remember the Chinese language, maybe Mandarin or something like that. I don't know that much about it. And I read this a long time ago, but the, the way that they had to translate it was they essentially had to use like Confucian vocabulary, right? Because of the way that mm-hmm. the Chinese written language worked is like each each word has its symbol, right? And those symbols were, they're, they're, they're kind of like developed on the back of Confucian ideas and Taoist ideas and stuff like that. So when they're, when they're translating ideas and philosophy that was written in Persian into the, into this language, they had to use that language, right? So they had to use things like they would refer to prophets as sages and the, like the Quran is, was called something like the, uh, the something classic or maybe just the classic um, they would talk about like in the Quran it says like the heavens and the earth in in this Confucian translation or this Chinese translation it would be called like the the thousand things beneath heaven or something like mm-hmm. that like there's all, all this vocabulary that is very much part of the Confucian tradition and then um, it, it was actually very much appreciated by the emperor of China he said that that these uh, Muslims have articulated our, com- our uh, Confucian beliefs. Oh, this was in the Neo-Confucian period. So if anybody knows about that period of Chinese history, this is what I'm talking about. Maybe 1400s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about, uh, yeah, how how well they articulated our Neo-Confucian beliefs in these Islamic texts and that th- they found it really interesting and really beneficial and they didn't find it threatening or foreign or anything like that. So I, I thought that was really cool. Uh, the book I read is called Chinese Gleams of Sufi Light by Sachiko Murata, I believe. So we can throw that in the show notes, I guess. Um, the other thing that came to mind is the yurts. So one thing that I've thought about is the way it must... You know, when you when we think about our homes, we have a... There's like a special feeling you get when you think about your home. You know, like we talk about like a home being cozy or something having hominess, you know, like you, you go in some interior spaces and it's like like a hospital or police station or some office buildings, you know, they have a feel to them. And then you go to someone's house and it feels lived in and all that kind of stuff. And we have a different kind of sense about mm-hmm. that. I, I think about that in terms of like what it would be like to be one of these people living on the step and living in these yurts which are mobile you know they're not they're not just like fixed locations um but the thing that i, I kind of think about is how their sense of space must be kind of different from ours because they travel such long distances and this is still true today i think even for like modern mongolian people uh they still kind of have some some aspect of this lifestyle where they travel these huge distances across these big flat plains with 
there's not these big buildings. It's not like densely populated or just dense in any sense at all. It's just flat and, and there's not a lot going on. But then you enter into the yurt and it's a, a very enclosed space. I don't know. Were you able to enter into any yurts and see that? Um, I can't really remember. I, I have before, but I can't remember if I was there. But I, I, I have before, though. Yeah. Well, just like, just, yeah. So just think about like, you're out on this plane. There's a strong wind, you know, and you can just see miles and miles in every direction. And there's this little round tent and you walk into the tent and close it up. And all of a sudden you've gone almost the exact opposite. It's like a, a very cozy little space. It's warm. It's, it's insulated from sound and wind and cold there's like a, a little pot going, you know, um, some some kind of broth is being boiled, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's very colorful and decorated, and it, it just seems the exact opposite, you know, such a contrast from the, that like vast outside space, and then you're in this very cozy little yurt space, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, I just think about that, like that seems it seems like important possibly to someone from that kind of lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I yeah. don't know. This, this is just the kind of goofy stuff I think about that fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if uh, when things will eventually open up again where we can start, I don't know, reporting on location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's this YouTube channel that I like to watch sometimes. It's a, It's basically like a Mongolian, you know, they have these different, youtube channels now that seem almost like promoted by national tourism agencies and stuff where it's kind of like chinese ones are are pretty popular there's a lot of those where it's like promoting different areas that they want people to come and visit and have this sort of like romantic sentiment about and shows like the traditional lifestyles and the the kind of like rural kind of what do they grow there what do they cook there what do they dress like what are their buildings like you know all the animals wandering around and Look how beautiful the weather is and the mountains and the trees, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, there's one for Mongolia, and I think it's called Artgur. You can throw that in the show notes too, I guess. Um, And they focus on the food, and it's just – it's a little bit – some of it's a little silly, but uh, it's it's pretty cool just to see, like, uh, the kind of stuff that they would eat. Uh, There's a lot of – you can clearly tell, like – well, that's from Russia and that's from China and that's from like probably Persia or, or the Turks or something mm-hmm. like, you know, kebabs and that kind of stuff. And it's just cool to see like the, they're, they're doing all these different kinds of food and then they got like the, these big bushy hats on and furs on and stuff like that and their dogs and stuff with them. And one, one thing, you know, the, the bows, you know, the Chinese buns, right? Yeah. I guess the the Mong the Mongolian style is just huge, like massive. Like if you think about like like a a, a one pound burger, you know, yeah. like a really big burger. They're like you got to hold them with two hands, kind of a thing, and you bite into it, and just like this waterfall of juice comes down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems fitting. It's very like. I, I, you know, I, I imagine they're trying to make that impression, right? Like this is the the Mongol bow, but. It's it's kind of neat in its own way. Yeah, I'll have to check some of that stuff out. I went through my YouTube yesterday, and I guess I I don't use it much, so I uh, I I went through my watch later, or whatever, and I was like, oh man, I got to watch some of this stuff. I don't know. There's so much like cool things now that I I just don't you know. 
I just end up watching like mm-hmm. one or two things. I don't like, I don't know. I very, I am very creature of habit. So I always default into like one or two things that I'm doing and then, uh, never sure, like, yeah. uh, just wander around on YouTube I've, just cause I find like most YouTube videos incredibly annoying. So, um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I'll have to try some of that stuff out that you suggest. So, yeah. It's fun, you know, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess the, the, just the point that I wanted to make by talking about all this stuff is sometimes like the the like trad contingent of folks you know the right wing kind of people will talk about like monoculture and how like modern capitalism or modern liberalism or whatever they pinpoint as the the culprit has destroyed all these different ways of life and all that kind of stuff and i don't know i just think there's something to that i don't know whose fault it is or whatever but it does seem like there is much less variety in terms of lifestyle and that more and more we kind of like people who don't live the way that we live are, you know, it's just kind of those, the conditions that enable their life are, are going away, you Mm -hmm. know? And, uh, I, I just think that the the fact that human beings can live in these very different ways, whether they're, you know, I'm not saying the Mongols are great. Like there's, plenty of things about these kinds of people that I think are horrific, you know, but I, I still think it's like amazing just that they, that that was real, that there was millions of people that lived like that. Yeah. And that that's, that's just one way of being human. And then we have that like within the past 500 years, like that's in, you know, that's in our like historical, we can document that we have evidence of that. If you go back before, like way before, you know say like like kind of prehistoric kind of man and just think about like those people yeah like you know we we kind of have like this caveman cartoonish sort of idea of like again it's sort of like we don't think of them as like actually being human and having like a full life the way we have you know it's almost like they're just like this background sort of thing they're not really I, I don't know. You, you are just one person, right? So like one of those people, like that's a, that's an equal thing. Like that's two human beings. One of them lives this way. One of them lives that way. It's just amazing to me that the, the variety and the difference that we can, we can uh, have in the different lives that people have had. I don't know. I, sometimes I think about like heaven and hell is going to be all these different people mixed up together and that's going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that, uh, uh, David Graeber, uh, used to talk about like the sort of like possibilities of human life kind of thing and all different. And that's one thing that he learned from anthropology was just this, this huge diversity of way that people can live. And the idea that like all of our institutions that we take for granted can be reworked in all different sorts of ways. And um, I don't know, I think that's something yeah. interesting in that where he takes it in a particular direction where he kind of he has some sort of distance from it too. And I think that's, that's true too, that I have, it's, you kind of have a little bit of distance from all these different, uh, ways of living where you can, you can kind of go, yeah, well, don't take yourself too seriously kind of thing, you know, with your, yeah, that's the good takeaway, right? Like, and also that like, there are many possibilities. We don't have to feel so like restricted and hemmed into like one, trajectory you know like things could be very very different and that's entirely 
possible. I think that's like the maybe that's what's really the the kernel of my fascination with this kind of stuff. It's just like that you we can do almost anything we wanted to, and for some reason today it it that doesn't seem possible. It, it's we're always kind of thinking in terms of like how can we you know, like with climate change and all this kind of stuff, we're, we're thinking about how can we maintain essentially the same kind of life and just like change things around so that, you know, we don't have to go back to some horrible kind of life. Like any, anything different seems like a nightmare, mm-hmm. but I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll be that thing Zizek said, right? Like in communism, things won't be better, but they will be different like they'll be still bad but they'll be different yeah like we'll have different kind of nightmares or whatever yeah i I think that that's uh i don't know it's sort of a good feeling i guess yeah well that was interesting for me so yeah so you want to get into some questions yeah sure let's let's do some questions okay so honestly tony asks do you feel good about the way things are going uh yeah so we we kind of talked about that. We did answer this question on an episode that we unfortunately lost due to Craig. Damn you, Craig. But, um, yeah, I guess just short and sweet. Well, I, I feel fine about things. Like, there's lots of problems. But for me personally, I feel okay about it. Like, I, I feel okay about how my life is going, I guess. Um, but just in general, I guess there's a lot of like, yeah, possible nightmare scenarios, but I I don't know. I don't feel the kind of like catastrophes looming kind of feeling that maybe I should be. I I don't know. I, I just don't know what to think, I guess. So it's hard to feel too good or too bad about it when it's just sort of confusing. Yeah. I feel pretty good about my life overall. And, uh, like I feel like things are improving for me and I'm just I'm on the other side of a lot of bad things kind of thing. And uh, so I feel good about that. Uh, I do feel like I need to work on health stuff a bit um, or else that will get worse a lot over time. But, you know, that's just, mm. that's probably true for a lot of people. So, um, and... Yeah, that's true for me. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I feel like... Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that I know that aren't doing well and stuff, and that's not great. But, you know, I, I don't know. I just think that, like, we'll see where it goes. I don't know. You know, this whole life right. of ours, we'll see what happens. So I, I do think that, like, hopefully if the vaccine works and all that for a while, that gives us some breathing room at least. Uh, we'll see what happens there. So, yeah. As long as I can get back into the movie theater soon. I don't know. I've only seen, I've only been to the movie theaters once. I'm one of the lucky people that were able to go when the caseload was down. So I did see. They did a special showing of the new Gal Gadot movie for you. Um, And uh, so I saw one movie over the past year, I guess. So, you know, I got to get back out there. So, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. You know, what are you going to do? It is. Sure. <laughs> there's, you know, you can sort out your life and then, uh, that's, that's about all you can really expect. I don't know. I, I think, uh, I have like faith in God about this kind sure. of stuff, you know, yeah. like whatever's going on, like this is what it's supposed to be. And then at some point I'm going to kick the bucket and then it's, uh, and it's over for me. And then that, that's it. That was what my life was supposed to be. It's all, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. Okay. So Luik asks, what do you think of the rumors claiming Dennis is a ginger? Uh, I have, I have less than no opinion about 
about this. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't think you should throw that kind of accusation around without uh, hard evidence. I don't know. Don't don't yeah, ever. Fair enough. Don't ever accuse someone of being a ginger unless you know for sure. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, CMDCN asks, if God creates us knowing all the choices we will make, is that really free will? Yeah, this is sort of like a common thing that people have trouble wrapping their head around and that like atheists or whatever will sort of use as like a trump card or whatever. I've never found this very difficult to understand. And apparently like it's a, it's not been like a dilemma philosophically in the Islamic tradition either. So maybe, you know, I don't know, but it doesn't seem too difficult to understand that like God creates us with free will. Uh, it's like watching a movie you've already seen, you know, you know, what's going to happen. Um, but you're not making that, I, I don't know, maybe that's not a good analogy, but we're we're created with free will we can make those decisions but he kind of knows those decisions that we're going to make and that, that also doesn't mean that we're not like morally responsible for them we we have the ability to choose just because he knows what we're going to choose and he created us in a way that you know clearly he has some ability to determine our choices in that sense because he's created us and the conditions that we live in I don't know. It, it, am I am I answering the question here? I just don't find it that difficult to to grasp this the way other people seem to. Is that something you've had difficulty with? Well, or? I guess you know the you know the basic thing is if uh, God gets to choose everything that happens, then He's choosing your choices. That's the you know that's the well y- sure, but in a in from our perspective, it's our choice, and that's what we're judged on. You know, he's not judging himself and it doesn't really like absolve our responsibility just because somebody else already knows the answers. Yeah, but it's different than it's not. It's I guess the question is that it's not like it's not like epistemological. It's not epistemological in the way that it's not God knowing what's going to happen. It's God also determining what's going to happen. So the choices are integrated Mm -hmm. into God's decisions. So if you're, you know. I don't know. It ends up becoming a big thing for Christianity when it's an issue of uh, who gets to go to heaven and stuff like that is like, you know, or, or who gets certain types of favor from God and stuff where, uh, you know, it's a matter of like, is it something that you get out of doing your good deeds yourself? Is it something that comes out of, you know, the free will of like, you know, uh, uh, and I just find it like confusing that's all. Like, I don't know the, the, the right answers. I, I think that the ones that I've heard are, are uh, plausible to me, but I feel like it's more that it's like presumptuous or something to worry too much about it kind of thing. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, some, sure. it's like yeah. you're going head to head with logic, with, uh, uh, supernatural intelligence with unlimited knowledge kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like you don't you. It's yeah. kind of presumptuous. Yeah. I, I think that's the right attitude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, to me, it, it's it's sort of like if you are tested and you're given the condition, the certain conditions for that test. It doesn't really matter the person who gave you that test, what control they have over the test. You're still being tested. You know. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's not absolute free will if that's the thing, but that's not 
point. That doesn't matter. Like the the thing is, you have some amount of choice, even if you didn't. Uh, you don't have choice in an absolute sense. Like you don't get to choose who you are and your the you know all that kind of stuff. Like you're sort of born a certain way or whatever. But um, you still make certain decisions. At least from your perspective, it's a decision that you made. You're like weighing, you know consequence and you're, you're kind of like, well, I want to do this, but I shouldn't do it. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I, it just doesn't seem like such a dilemma sure. to me. I, I, I understand what you were saying about like, it, you know, you, you said that this was like an issue, these kind of debates in Christianity, those sorts of debates also have occurred uh, in Islam. But I think ultimately the, I, this particular question of like, is it really free will has never really been a big problem in the mainstream it's always sort of been like a you know that uh, there, there's just like an understanding that is just kind of like it makes sense i guess yeah at least to me and it, it's it's been sort of like a common sense thing in the muslim world so well, the debates ended up mattering more in the early modern period in modern period where like uh it started getting getting bound up with questions of science and uh um mm-hmm. Uh, psychology and all that kind of stuff where it's like, um, you know, the critiques of it being like, well, you can't prove that God is good or something like that, you know? And um, anyways, I don't really know a lot about that kind of stuff, but it doesn't interest me as much as it did before. So, yeah. 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 I guess to just to answer the question, is that really free will? Um it really depends what you consider free will, I guess. Like it, it's not absolute free will, but it is enough free will that you can be judged for it. That would be my answer. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, okay, so B Fox asks, "Do you press the the button to eject a flash drive before pulling it out?" <laughs> I uh, I very rarely use a flash drive, and when I do, I never think about that. I just forget about that. So no, not really. Do you? Yeah, I always do. Because it always bothers you if you don't. I don't know. It always says like you you ejected without whatever. So I always do that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So Pookie asks, should I get back out of bed uh, to brush my teeth? Oh man, he asked this on November 11. I hope he's still not in bed. Yeah. Um. So I guess he went to bed uh, without brushing his teeth. Yeah, you should always brush your teeth. Yeah. So we'll endorse brushing our teeth on this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, Jorgen Bigshits asks, for Tom, favorite Sahaba, for Don, favorite disciple. All right, I'll give you, give you guys a little bit of like in, insider knowledge here. Sahaba is plural and Sahabi is singular. So just, yeah, if you want to front like you actually know things, you can say that, say, say things that way and impress people. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I tend to like Omar. Uh, he's kind of like a big tough guy, macho kind of thing. And sort of, there's like funny accounts of him doing different things. It's kind of all the, the Caliph sort of have, whereas the prophet is like this perfect person, you know, he's like very gentle, but he's also very like ferocious in battle or whatever. And, you know, he kind of like is, uh, is like the complete kind of model of what you would like to be kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Um, the, the caliphs are, they're just people in a sense. Like they're obviously they have like an elevated status, but it's not, 
it's not they're not prophets right so they are much more flawed and kind of to some level like i don't think the prophet is not relatable but there's something about like the sahaba and the caliphs in particular that they're a little bit more relatable in the sense that like you see them making more mistakes and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so i don't know i've i i like omar i guess yeah i think that i'll probably choose a similar one where it's like saint peter where uh he screws up a few times kind of things and stuff or like you know and he you know he he's supposed to be the sort of like one of the closest confidants of uh jesus and then he uh basically you know when when uh, jesus is caught and stuff there he's basically like i don't know who that guy is basically you know like uh i don't know i find that relatable i don't know that it's like he's he's the person that sort of founds the church in a lot of ways and then is just uh he he has a lot to kind of answer for himself kind of thing so i, I don't know i'll do that as a similar answer there so yeah yeah there are um there are some sahaba that were like bedouins and uh they were very they just didn't know any respect basically (laughs) so like the stories about them are they're often they're not really named they're just like this bedouin came and said this thing and uh they would you know they were just very like direct and um like uncouth and stuff like they would grab at the prophet and just like demand things or like if they wanted an answer to something they would like ride in from miles away and just walk up to him and just like you know hit him on the shoulder and be like hey what what's this explain this what, what yeah. you know like that kind of a thing mm-hmm. even though they would be muslim you know which is um, like astounding to me yeah but that's just the kind of way they were i guess sure. um so i i kind of like that too like that's kind of endearing in some kind of sure. way is there any stories like in the early christian sort of traditions or anything like that about people like that that like jesus or the disciples or whatever would come across well i mean that was a, a lot of like jesus's ministry and stuff where i don't know about i mean yeah there like he would he would constantly be met by people that were like trying to criticize him or try to get one up on him kind of thing you know be like sure oh, yeah here's here's a way of, uh, like, here's something you obviously didn't think of. Then he's like, boom, here you go. But that happened a lot with, uh, um, the disciples and stuff where they would, you know, they, they would have like debates about things and, um, uh, you know, it was very, very contentious all the time. Yeah. And it, there was always like these, a lot of the stories that they tell are like just giant reversals kind of thing or like surprises and stuff. And, um, but, uh, yeah, like uh, a lot of the time they, they do respond by being like surprised by things and stuff where they're like, even people that are his followers are always like, didn't see certain things coming. It's not like he's just elaborating something. They all were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They were also like constantly right. surprised by the things. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Like uh, if it was uh, something they already understood, there wouldn't be much need for, yeah. you know, so for prophets or for yeah. you know for god to be incarnated yeah, sure. you know however however you interpret yeah. that well i i hope uh i hope you guys enjoyed listening to me kind of ramble on about this stuff it's it's something that i find really fun and i do encourage you guys to check out the podcasts that i mentioned the youtube channels and stuff if you're interested i i think they're it's good stuff yeah and thanks for uh, sharing some of that with us yeah so i guess we'll talk to you guys next week bye bye bye